We are Hope Church Guildford. This is a recent recording from our Sunday morning gathering. We hope you can join us at the Royal Grammar School on Guildford High Street, Sundays at 10am. Enjoy the message. Good morning. Can everyone hear me? Yes. Sounds like it's working. Cool. Um, morning, Hope Church. It's so great to be here with all of you today, for those of us who are in person. And let me extend my welcome to those who are on Zoom as well. Uh, and a big Hope Church welcome. Um, Stuart's introduced me pretty well, so I don't think I need to introduce myself again. But I am Rahana. Um, and as Stuart said, I've been coming to this church for just under two years and um, also help lead the Students in Twenties ministry. Um, Hasn't it been so good over this summer as we've gone through the Psalms and people have shared their favourite Psalms with us? Psalms that have reminded us of that God is our refuge and our helper. Psalms that worship his majestic name and that remind us of the wonders of his creation. Psalms that show us what it means to us to live as the people of God. The richness of the book of Psalms comes from the fact that these poems, these songs, uh, this anthology covers the whole breadth of human emotion and shows us God's place in it. I once heard a preacher refer to the Psalms as the deep cries of the human heart. Um, And that's really stayed with me, because isn't it just so true? What we read in the Psalms could very well be from the psalmist's diaries. Um, So when I was asked to preach as part of this series, I struggled to know which Psalm to pick, partly because there's a lot of good ones, um, partly because a lot of my favourite psalms are the more depressing ones. Um, the psalms I love most are the ones that wrestle with the harder parts of life. Uh, doubt, depression, temptation. But I figured it's the height of August, the sun should have been shining, and this whole series has been pretty uplifting and hopeful, uh, so I should aim for a similar note, which is why I'm preaching on Psalm 32 a chapter all about that light-hearted topic of sin. Um, So on that note, let's start this time by reading it together. So this is Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Okay, so... Uh, Now that we've read the passage, you probably see I was exaggerating slightly to say that this psalm is all about sin. Uh, Not to say it's not about that, but it's about so much more than that. It's about our response to sin, and it's about God's forgiveness. It's about our status in him, and it's about God's heart. 
we know that it's a psalm of David. And many believe it to have been written shortly after his affair with Bathsheba, uh, almost as a follow-up to Psalm 51, in which he responds to Nathan's rebuke of his actions. We also know that it's a maskil. Uh, There's a little bit of debate over whether this is just a literary term, kind of letting you know the form of the psalm, so, you know, clarifying whether it's a song or a poem. Um, However, some scholars believe that actually the term is similar to the Hebrew for contemplation or even instruction, both of which make perfect sense in the context of this psalm. So, before we dig into it, I just want us all to take a moment to breathe and pause and prepare yourselves to listen and contemplate what David is saying here and to really look for how God instructs us through his words. Cool. Um, So many of us will know that the number three is pretty important in the Bible. It's the number of days before Jesus' resurrection. It's the number of persons in the Trinity. And it's also very helpfully the number of sections this psalm is thematically divided into. So we start with verses 1 to 2, where that tell us of the status God assigns his people. Moving into the journey from confession to forgiveness in verses 3 to 7, and then rounding it off with verses 8 to 10, switching narrators to show us the way that God wants to lead. Then the psalm ends with one more verse of praise, a rejoicing that Stuart read to us earlier, uh, that comes from the cumulative knowledge of all David has expressed up until that point. So let's start at the beginning of this psalm, which says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. David starts this psalm by reminding us and himself that those that the Lord has forgiven are blessed. Interestingly, it's the same phrase used at the start of the book of Psalms in Psalm 1. That psalm goes on to say that the one who is blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, the one who walks differently to the sinners around him. This psalm uses the same phrase, but here the agency isn't with the one to whom the verses refer, but rather with God. I've mentioned already about uh, the Bible's love of the use of three, and it's funny that again here, there is another use of three in this section. And that's the three different terms used to explain what God has done to our sin. Forgiven, covered, does not count against them. Or in some translations it says, does not impute. All of these terms are past tense, reminding us that they are words that the Lord has actioned towards this nameless one to which David refers. This one who we can safely assume is David himself. It's easy to read these three terms and assume that they're all the same thing. But actually, the use of each of them separately suggests three different actions taken by God. The blessed one is forgiven. They have had their burden or debt lifted. They are covered, likely referring to the sacrificial blood of the lamb covering them. Uh, But the term also reminded me of when you go out with a friend and you're expecting to pay and they warmly say to you, don't worry. I've got it covered. Uh, The final term is perhaps the most revealing. The Lord does not count their sin against them. This phrase acknowledges that sin is still definitely there, and the Lord knows this and notices, but actively chooses not to hold this against them. 
The Lord has done all three of these things for David, and he has done all of these things for those who have forgiven. Similarly, this passage contains another triad in which there are three different words used to describe sin. The first is transgressions, which I know many of us swap out for sins when reciting the Lord's Prayer, but here they're used with slightly different meanings. Transgression refers to willful rebellion against God, uh, where a direct defiance of his authority, whereas sin means something a little less intentional, a missed target or falling short of God's standards in some way. The third term, which is found a little later in the psalm in verse 5, is the word iniquity, which refers to a crookedness or distortion, so the ways in which uh, we've gone wrong just as a byproduct of living in a fallen world. Uh, By having these three separate terms, it shows us that not only has the Lord done all of the things we'd said before, um, but he has done them in a way that covers all possible ways we can live in opposition to him. For us today, we live with the knowledge and hindsight of what Jesus has done for us. So when we read these verses, we know not only what God has done, but we know exactly how he has actioned it for us. Jesus dying on the cross is our forgiveness, our covering, and our debt being cancelled. Jesus died on the cross to cleanse us of our sin, our transgressions, and our iniquity. The other thing we learn from these early verses is that this blessed status is a permanent one. The use of the continuous tense repeatedly reminds us that for those who are forgiven through Jesus' work, that's it. You're done. It's sorted. You are now the one to whom these verses refer. Blessed is the one. However, at this point in reading the psalm, whilst we know that those who are forgiven are blessed, we don't actually know what needs to be done on our part to be forgiven or what reckoning with sin really looks like. So let's move on to the next section of the passage. In Proverbs, chapter 28, verse 13, it says, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. When Solomon wrote that, I wonder whether he had read this psalm, or if his father David had expressed the sentiments in it regarding the weight of sin. Because what we see here in verses 3 and 4 is the direct opposite of prospering. David is having a horrible time. As he holds on to his sin and keeps it silently to himself, it makes him physically ill. Verse 3 says, My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. I don't know how you guys feel after you've done something wrong, but I know that for a lot of us, our natural inclination is to want to wallow in it a bit. We so easily let ourselves become consumed by guilt uh, the way that David does here. And that wallowing, as we can see from this, is not only fruitless, but it can be dangerous to our mental and physical state. Uh, In my teens, I struggled with depression and being the lowest I've ever been. And if I dissect why that was, and I'm completely honest with myself, I think it's because I just felt so aware of my own sinfulness And I didn't have the theological footing at that age to remind myself of God's grace. As I read what David describes here of the heaviness of God's hand on him, I think I understand what he means. Another person who understood it profoundly was the preacher Charles Spurgeon, who said this, When but young in years, I felt with much sorrow the evil of sin. My bones waxed old with roaring all day long. The other time in my life that I have felt tangibly aware of my own sinfulness 
uh, has actually been over this past year during lockdown, um, and it's part of the reason I chose this psalm today. Uh, I've seen it in my impatience and frustration with my housemates. I've seen it in my attitude to work. I've seen it in the way I've used my extra free time over the last 18 months. But now I'm older, and I hope at least a tad wiser, and I now recognise that actually conviction of sin is a really positive thing. God's hand is heavy on David here, the same way it's heavy on us when we sin. But it means that God's hand is present and working for and in us. Knowing that we are sinners shows that we know God's way and we subconsciously want to walk in it. It means we are recognising, as we should, that sin is evil and awful. And we're actually calling it out in our own life, rather than clutching it silently as David does. Uh, this knowledge also makes these next verses that much sweeter. So we've seen David in the midst of his wallowing, and then in verse 5, we now see him give that sin to the Lord and work towards earning his forgiveness. Well, I say earning, but the beauty of these verses is that there's very little work to be done. The thing that David does to earn his forgiveness, to gain it, to receive that status that we talked about in the earlier verses is confess his sin to the Lord. When he does, the verse continues, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. It seems like maybe I've skipped a few sentences, right? Where's the groveling? Where's David telling God all the reasons why he should be forgiven? Where's the promise to never slip up again? Remember also that this sin, it's not just like nicking a pen from your office. Like David had an affair and then sent his mistress's husband to the front line to be killed. And in spite of that, it remains as simple as this. David confessed his sins, and God forgave them. He confessed, and God forgave. And we know that not only has God done this for David, but he'll do it for us. In the New Testament, in 1 John 1, verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Our side of the deal seems easy, but it's only because God is that faithful and that kind and that loving. Forgiveness from human beings is rarely as easy as this. Um, When I was 18, a close friend of mine told me something in confidence and I very unwisely shared it with another friend of ours. Um, It wasn't done with malicious intent or anything, but it wasn't right of me to do, and the friend whose trust I betrayed was expectedly very hurt. And when I say very hurt, I mean that she didn't talk to me for three months, despite the fact we were in the same classes every day, we had the same group of friends, um, we would see each other all the time, but she wouldn't say a word to me. Um, I'm thankful that six years later, things are fine between us now, but, and I'm so thankful that she forgave me, but I'm even more thankful that through this memory and through this contrast, I recognise how incredulous and phenomenal God's forgiveness is. I look at the cross and I can truly see the measure of that sacrifice. In his book, The Disciplines of Grace, um, which is a great book that I'd recommend, uh, Pastor Jerry Bridges says this, repentance is one of the Christian's highest privileges. A repentant Christian focuses on God's mercy and God's grace. Any moment in our lives when we bask in God's mercy and grace is our highest moment. What's great about this section is that David doesn't just stop at talking about his own forgiveness, but leads into imploring others to seek it for themselves. 
Verse 6 says, Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising tides will not reach them. From that last sentence, it leads into verse 7, in which a forgiven David tells us the things that God is to him. His hiding place, someone who protects him from trouble, and sings to him songs of deliverance. When I think of the contrast in David's temperament from verses 3 to verse 7, I'm reminded of a scene from the Disney film Moana. Um, has anyone seen it? Who's seen Moana? A few people have seen it. Great. All the parents in the room have got their hands up. Um, I'll show you the scene I'm referring to in a second. But for those who haven't seen the film, I'll provide a bit of context. So our hero Moana is sent on a quest to restore the heart of Tefiti, who is an ancient goddess who is responsible for their islands. Uh, to return the heart, she must get past Takar, which is this big, fiery monster who has attacked any sailors. Um, however, Moana realises that Tefiti and Takar are one and the same. The goddess has just been distorted by the evil of having her heart removed. Uh, let's watch what Moana does after this realisation. Hopefully the clip will work. Great. Um, this scene always hits me because it reminds me so much of the way that God calls out to us. He walks across the water, he knows our name, and he knows our true identity that is in him, that status of being the blessed one. Jesus' work on the cross reconciles us and restores us so that we may live under him and for the purposes God intended, so that we may know his protection from the waters and hear his songs of deliverance surrounding us. It would be great if the passage ended there, and it would certainly make us feel pretty good about our status under God and the ease of receiving his forgiveness. Uh, however, as with all instances of God's forgiveness, it doesn't quite end there. When we talk about God being forgiving, and in particular Jesus, one of the stories that Christians first go to is that of the woman caught in adultery, which you can find in John 8. I've seen all sorts of interpretations over the years of what Jesus forgiving this woman means. And most of them focus on this act of mercy um, and Jesus calling out the hypocrisy of others there, of those who want to stone her. But I think people can be quite quick to forget what Jesus actually says to the woman at the end of this passage, which is this. He says, go and sin no more. His forgiveness isn't conditional but there is an expectation that her life will respond to having received it. And that expectation lies with all Christians too. True repentance looks like change. There's a current trend with online influencers such as YouTubers where upon being called out for their actions, they'll make a long apology video or they'll type out an essay and put it on Instagram only to have to do the same thing again a few weeks later and again a few weeks later. Um, and we've seen this even before internet culture with politicians. Again, they'll make an apology and then a month later are stood up not having changed their behaviour. And that's not the kind of apology that God is looking for from us. Our forgiveness is as simple as confession, but our journey with God has to begin there rather than end. When we turn from God, it is also a call to turn away from our sin. Uh, as one friend once said to me, God's grace is a safety net when we fall, but it is not an excuse to jump. Uh, John Piper said, when talking about this psalm, that God is not in the business of just covering our sins, but also of shaping our characters. 
And we see that in particular in verses 8 and 9, where the narrator of the psalm switches so that David speaks God's words directly to us through his own voice. God shows us here the way we should go following confession of sin, and he declares that he will instruct us and teach us this way. We know that he does this through scripture, but also through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And the clear instruction he gives here uses an interesting animal analogy. God tells us in verse 9, do not be like the horse or the mule who have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. This is basically God's poetic way of saying, don't be stubborn. Don't dig your heels in and wait for me to come pull you in the right direction. God doesn't want to have to drag us to him, but he wants us to be able to come freely. He's not a rider cracking the whip, and he has given us free will. But he also doesn't want us to be remaining in opposition to him. This comparison to the mule says, don't be stubborn, but it also says to us, do be teachable. Be willing to listen to God's instruction and counsel in this area. It can seem like quite a harsh verse, but we know from verse 8 that all of this is said with God's loving eye on us. This is the loving discipline that a father gives his child. In verse 10, we are reminded of what David has already said in verse 7, that the Lord's love will surround his people. However, this verse does contain a conditional term. It says... The Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. We must trust in him to know the goodness of his love. Similarly, in verse 6, David says, Let the faithful pray to you while you may be found. God's forgiveness is free to us because of what Jesus did on the cross, but we have to go to him in confession and repentance to receive that gift. Don't be like the mule. Don't have to wait for him to put the bit and bridle on you. Just come to him freely. And then after all of this, we get to the end of this psalm where the voice switches back to David and he reminds us to rejoice in the Lord. This isn't unusual for a psalm of David at all. Even in his psalms of lament, it will end on this note of acknowledging God's power and the hope that offers. The difference between some of those psalms And this one, though, is that the whole way through this passage, David has been setting it up and pointing us towards those specific reasons to rejoice. So what are these reasons? Well, we can rejoice because the Lord has forgiven. I talked a lot earlier about those triplets, the triads that exist in the first few verses. But what I didn't mention is that not only is three a holy number in scripture, but it is specifically the holy number of completion. God's actions towards David, Jesus' actions towards us, complete the work of forgiveness of sin. Whatever sin you have committed and will commit, uh, God has forgiven, covered, and will not hold against you. That is definitely reason to rejoice. We can rejoice because the Lord has given us a clean conscience. We see the weight he lifts off David once he confesses his sin, that he removes that guilt that saps our strength. As Romans 8 reminds us, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we confess to him, he gives us a clean slate and the opportunity to start fresh again. We can rejoice in the refuge that God offers us 
that beautiful picture that David paints of the seas not being able to reach us and instead God surrounding us with songs of deliverance. That thing we saw mirrored in the scene from Moana and the restoration that followed. We can rejoice in his counsel, the instruction he gives us through his word and spirit to help us live for him through our choices rather than through his heavy hand. The fact that he offers us both wisdom and discipline with his loving eye trained on us. And our final reason to rejoice comes in the very end of this passage, when David's call to rejoice is addressed to all you who are upright in heart. We can celebrate and praise that the Lord has made us upright in this crooked world through Jesus assigning us his own righteousness through his work on the cross. It is good and right that we should rejoice in these things. And I pray that this reminder of God's forgiveness and faithfulness will give you a greater hope in him. However, let's not forget these conditional clauses that I spoke about. If you have sin in your heart that you know you haven't repented of, you don't have to be afraid to bring it to God. As Emily shared with us earlier, this picture of the bricks in the shopping bags, like, you shouldn't have to be carrying those bricks. You can give them to him. Pray to him while he may be found and let him lift the weight of that sin and any shame you may feel. He wants you to come to him, but he also isn't going to force you. God loves you and is quick to forgive any sin you confess to him. I'm just going to leave a moment of silence here just to give all of us a chance to repent. Um, And if you can't think of anything to repent of, ask God to reveal his heart to you that you would know areas in your life that you need to change. I I also want to encourage you to find other Christians that you can be accountable to, men and women of the faith who will both encourage you and rebuke you in your walk with Christ. There's a classic phrase that a burden shared is a burden halved, but um, also it's a biblical imperative for us to be doing this. James 5 verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. Find a trusted Christian friend who you can be open with and pray with. They aren't going to judge you. They don't have the right to because we're all sinful people and we're all in need of God's forgiveness. Um, But yeah, I just want to encourage that even in the hard parts of the faith, don't forget that repentance is a privilege. It's a joy that we can come to God. And definitely don't forget all of those reasons that we have to rejoice in the Lord. He is our refuge. He is our hope. And his grace is enough to cover all of the worst parts of our lives. So let's take some time now to pray and thank God for his grace. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for the simplicity of confession and forgiveness. I pray that each of us here would uh, know, know our sin, but also know that your grace is enough to cover it. Um, Where there's areas we struggle with, Father, would you be softening our hearts towards you and changing us? When we come to you, would you help us to change our lives, to live for you? May we allow your spirit to be working in us, to mould us. 
We thank you that we can come to you freely. And we thank you that your grace covers all things that we have done and that we will do. And I just pray that we would be people who live in the joy and knowledge of your grace. Amen. Thanks for listening. We meet on Sundays at 10am at the Royal Grammar School in Guildford. We look forward to seeing you.